Leviticus chapter 10. We'll actually begin reading in verse chapter 9 and verse 22. Leviticus 9:22 through 10 and verse 7. Leviticus 9.22, and Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them and came down from offering of the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. There came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is it, that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said unto Aaron and to Eleazar and unto Ithamar his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, and lest wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. And ye shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Please note the fire of God's pleasure. Chapter 9. Verse 24, please note the fire of God's displeasure, chapter 10, verse 2. And why am I bringing this to you this morning? Well, because of the fact that Hebrews 12, 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. Father, this morning, 
the subject that has borne into our soul is of a serious nature. And we pray for the liberty and the grace to speak of it correctly, especially as we are convinced that the pattern of the Old Testament is uniquely representing the truth of the New Testament relative to the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us then to see how that the fire of your pleasure fell on Christ, the perfect sacrifice. How that the fire of your displeasure falls upon all and everything that is apart from Christ. And especially help us as believing priests not to offer strange fire. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. Number one on the list is commercial fishermen. Number two, loggers. Number three, roofers. Number four, construction workers. Number five, pilots and flight engineers. Number six, refuge and recycling workers. Number seven, structural iron and steel workers. Number eight, truck drivers. Number nine, mining operators. Number 10, farmers. According to OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, those are the 10 most dangerous jobs relative to the fatality rate in these United States of America. Reading the priestly historical record in Leviticus 10 may well cause you and me to add to that list the dangerous occupation of priestly worship leader. Sobering moment in Leviticus 9 and 10. Now this ought to be compelling interest for you and me, particularly because most of us see ourselves as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and as believers declared of God to be priests, priests of God. You and I, who know Christ as our personal Savior, have direct access to the throne room of God. We don't have to go to somebody else when we want to talk to God. We don't have to come to the church and I enter into some little booth and open up a screen, and you talk to me, and then I talk to God. You can go to God directly, because indeed, because of the blessedness and the superiority of our high priest, Jesus Christ, you can have audience with God by simply lifting your heart in prayer. As a believer priest, you have come together today to worship God. You are not just a participator. You have not come to be the audience. You have come to provide the service. Now, usually in the Baptist realm of things, we divide serving the Lord, at least in our minds, uh, between uh, pulpit and pew, or platform and pew. We generally have the idea that anybody up here, like Russell or me or someone else that's up here, that, that that's the person that is serving the Lord. And that the people out there are just, uh, what, gawking? 
you know, what, what, how would you describe pew-sitting? Well, I can only describe it as the Bible describes it, and that is active participation. As believer priests, we come together at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning to worship God. It's the Bible itself that tells us that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Peter says it, that we should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This particular month, month of May, we are preaching from selected Old Testament passages that help us to answer the question, how might we best honor God and the truth of the gospel in a time when Christ is commonly moralized, minimized, and trivialized among local churches of all stripes. Heretofore, we have answered in part that question by talking about a principled commitment to the scripture. We built that case from Nehemiah chapter 8. We've also talked about the necessity of a correct and godly attitude towards the Lord, especially in regards to difficult circumstance from Habakkuk chapter 2. This morning, we're building the case for an active pursuit of all things Christ. Christ in our preaching. Christ in our praying Christ in our patterns of living and service. That's the sermon in a nutshell. Christ in our preaching. Christ in our praying. Christ in the pattern of our life and our service. The swift judgment of God upon Aaron's two serving sons is so jarring to the sensitive soul that it's easy to miss the fact that the record speaks of two fire fallings and uh, as an event, both of which are revealing and precedent-setting. Now, I think a few weeks ago that uh, uh, in the adult Sunday school hour that this passage was at least uh, read and and dealt with to some degree, and uh, and, uh, I'm sure that you've paid attention to some of the facets that were here, but the thing that I would call your attention to is that this uh, fire falling Uh, event or events uh, take place very close to the very beginning or initiation of priestly service in the Old Testament. What makes this a unique moment is that God at Sinai had given to Moses his law. God at Sinai had given to Moses the uh, blueprint for the tabernacle. Uh, God had uh, at Sinai had given to Moses the instructions for an operational priesthood. And now the tabernacle has been constructed according to God's law, and the law of God has been communicated to God's people at this moment in biblical history. And now the moment comes to, to activate or to start the aspect of uh, the, uh, uh, the worship of God as prescribed under the law, which is a worship of God facilitated by priestly service. And it appears to me that there's a good possibility that maybe the first falling and even the second falling all took place on the same day. In fact, I kind of think that uh, those that speak of the fact that the first falling came at the morning sacrifice and the second falling of fire came at the evening sacrifice, I think there's something to that. 
because the Bible doesn't really give us any indication of time, to be sure, but it certainly doesn't indicate that there was a long period of time between when the fire of God's pleasure came and consumed that which God had called for on the offering, on the altar of offering. In contrast to the aspect of uh, Nadab and Abihu's offering of strange fire, and uh, obviously the loss of their own, their own lives. For the sake of my son, who's a state park ranger in Florida, I say that the fire that I see in uh, Leviticus 9 uh, and verse uh, uh, 24, and the fire that I see in Leviticus 10 and verse 2 cannot be described as wildfire. It must be described as prescribed fire. Uh, we understand both of the evidences of fire come right out of the throne of God uh, from the Lord. Our God is, says Hebrews 12, 29, a consuming fire. The passage before us abounds with connections backward and forward. The fire fell in that first case and consumed the sacrifice, and yet in the second case, the fire uh, did not consume as we might Expect it can consume. Let me just back up and take that again. When the fire of God's pleasure fell, the things that were on the sacrificial altar were gone. Consumed. The fire fell, and it was consumed. Now, in the second case, the fire falls upon sinful Nadab and Abihu, and the thing that strikes me, verse 5, 10-5, is that their uncle's boys are called by Moses to carry them out. And so when they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. The thing that strikes me is that the fire that fell that brought about the physical death of Nadab and Abihu apparently did not destroy their bodies and did not even destroy their clothing. And one of the things that we confront in the scripture is that fire from God has a quality about it that operates very differently than the fire that we know on the earth. For instance, the fire at the burning bush, a unique manifestation of the presence of God, consumed not the bush even though it was a fire of warning to Moses to take off his shoes because he was on holy ground. Likewise, we see that a fire in some ways similar to the burning bush consumed not the bodies nor the clothes of Aaron's two sons, although, of course, it, it uh, took their lives physically. Again, I see a contrast here, the fire of God's pleasure and the fire of God's displeasure. And if you will, really, fire has three references. The fire of God's pleasure, 924. The inappropriate fire, called strange fire, or profane fire, 101. And then the manifestation of God's fire of displeasure. So really three emphasis concerning the aspect of fire, Two, coming out of heaven, one, offered up to heaven 
by man. We would call it, in summary, the inappropriate offering to God by man in priestly service. The inappropriate offering to God by man in priestly service. Certainly one of the most revealing statements in this particular text would be that which is found in verse 3, where Moses says to a now very grieved Aaron, this is it, that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. If a person is going to operate as a priest, they better pay attention to operating in righteousness. Because to operate priestly in unrighteousness, it's dangerous business. And furthermore, God said, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And in this particular case, we understand the I will, I will as determinate. Or if you will, I will or else. God said, I will be Approached by people that do it right. God said, I will be glorified among my people. I will. And we might righteously add the words, or else. Now, the, the problem here, the violation here, has something to do with the incense mix. It may seem to us rather minor. But obviously there was a swift and final response of God that makes it very, very clear that this was a very serious matter as the record reveals Leviticus 9 and 10. Now I'd like to suggest to you in the bigger, broader scope of biblical consideration that this is one of three precedent-setting events in the Bible in which we see a unique manifestation of God's displeasure, along with an accompanying special manifestation of his holy presence. We can easily connect this event back to the dealings of God with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. We can easily connect this event forward to the New Testament dealings of God with church members, Ananias and Sapphira, as recorded in Acts chapter 5. In all three cases, Genesis 3, Leviticus 10, Acts 5, a pattern emerges, and that pattern has been listed for you in your study outline in the bulletin. God had worked to gloriously place representative humanity with wonderful access and opportunity with him directly, true of Adam and Eve, True of the nation of Israel, true of the church, true of the Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, true of Israel in Leviticus 10, true of the church in Acts 5. God faithfully communicated to Adam and Eve. He faithfully communicated through Moses to Israel. God faithfully communicated finally and, and, uh, and in, in, a way, in, in a way that is consummate. Uh, to you and me in Christ. And uh, his expectations have been faithfully communicated to us. 
and uh, that faithful communication is for the perpetuation of a glorious relational opportunity. Adam and Eve had a glorious opportunity. They blew it. Israel had a glorious opportunity. Obviously, Nadab and Abihu blew it. Ananias and Sapphira had a glorious opportunity, and obviously they blew it because they rebelled against, in all three cases, Adam and Eve, Nadab and Abihu, and Ananias and Sapphira rebelled against their opportunity with God by self-serving initiation and purpose. And in all three cases, the Garden of Eden, the first day of uh, worship normalized under the law, and then the uniqueness of worship as described in Acts chapter 5 relative to the local church. In all three cases, God acted to judge the sinful rebellion swiftly and to set precedent for days ahead. It's so important that we see these moments of fire, of judgment coming from God as precedent setting. Just think what would happen if every time a born-again believer lied, they died. Just think how many people would be here today if the standard of God was lie and die. Would you be here? Would I be here? So believe me, there's some some joy and peace in the fact that these were precedent-setting things for us to learn from and to apply for our own sense of understanding and worship of the Lord. They're precedent-setting so that we would indeed refine our fear of God. Precedent-setting so that indeed we would refine uh, our righteous hope for all humanity uh, exclusively in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you this morning that it was the prerogative of God to be done entirely with humanity in the garden after Adam and Eve blew it. I would remind you that it was the prerogative of God to be done entirely with the priesthood in Israel after Nadab and Abihu blew it. I would remind you that it was the prerogative of God to be done entirely with the church lying members there then and forever. But God in mercy and grace acted in these defining moments by swift judgment to push our grasp of his awful greatness and his loving goodness to us in the person of Jesus Christ. All Bible precedent like all Bible promises. All Bible precedents, like all Bible prophecies, find their goal and end gate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Truly, every line of the Old Testament shadow you can find the substance of Jesus Christ. Now, one more thing, having introduced this idea of the substance of Christ, which ultimately we're going to chase here this morning, I want you to think with me about the fact that, uh, that the warning 
that uh, uh, God gave Adam and Eve concerning the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat has caused a tremendous stir of interest and speculation as to what kind of fruit that was. About the only thing that we're convinced about the fruit is that wasn't an apple. <laughs> but beyond that, I don't know of anybody with the Bible in their hand that could be definitive. We do not know the nature of the fruit other than what God said about the fruit in his word. Furthermore, we don't know anything about the strange fire that Nadab and Abihu uh, lit with their, uh, uh, with their censers from off the fire of the altar. We don't know specifically what was wrong with that incense. There's all kinds of commentary. There's all kinds of speculation. But none of it would be authoritative. And furthermore, uh, nobody knows how much uh, Ananias and Sapphira got for the house and the property that they sold, how much they gave to the church, lying in the fact that they said it was all that they got, and keeping back themselves, keeping back for themselves the the, the remainder. It may be that they were going to ask 130,000 and they got 178. Is maybe. That should have woken some of your minds. Uh, 6061. Nonetheless, we don't know the amount. We don't know the fruit. And we don't know uh, the particular problem with the incense mix that was used by uh, Nadab and Abihu. So the question is what do we know? What do we know? Well, what we do know is is that every single Bible verse in some way points us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we know that you and I, who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, are believer priests. That we have priestly responsibility before the Lord. I would suggest on that basis that it's not too difficult to uh, determine what might be called the New Testament equivalence of strange fire offered by Nadab and Abihu. We draw near to God exclusively in the person of Christ. We rightly define salvation, sanctification, and service in Christ. The standard for preaching Christ. The standard for praying Christ. The standard for living or the pattern for life and serving Christ. Of that there is no doubt. And so then it's easy to take A and connect it to B and end up with C. And so if Christ-like and Christ-emphasis in preaching and Christ-focused praying and Christ as the pattern of life is to God's pleasure, then something less than Christ in preaching would be strange. Something less than Christ in praying would be strange. Something less than Christ in the pattern of living 
would be strange. You with me? Now let me show you how that thread line develops in the pages of the New Testament. Gospel, history, epistles. Gospel, history, epistles. Luke chapter 3. The Gospel of Luke chapter 3. I'm interested in this passage because John the baptizer is interacting concerning the Lord's Christ or Messiah and the description of Christ from the lips of John the baptizer is intriguing concerning the introduction back in Leviticus 9 of a fire of God's pleasure and another fire of God's displeasure. Luke 3, verse 16, John answered, saying unto them, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. May I suggest that would be the fire of God's pleasure. That would be the fire of revival. That would be the fire of evangelistic advance. That would be the fire of worship rightly done in priestly service. That is the fire in which the Lord Jesus Christ baptizes his people in the Holy Spirit and fire. But John wasn't done talking in verse, in verse 17. He said, whose fan, Christ's fan, is in his hand. And he will thoroughly, thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. That would be the fire of displeasure. My point would be this. In the New Testament Gospels, clearly associated with the person and the work of Jesus Christ is the fire of God's pleasure and the fire of God's displeasure. You can characterize the whole of the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth under the banner of and the metaphor of fire. The fire of God's pleasure and the fire of God's displeasure. The fire of God's pleasure always being uniquely connected to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the fire of God's displeasure being connected to the burning away of the chaff with fire that is called unquenchable in relationship to the person of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to have you turn uh, to Luke 12:49, but just note the reference, because in Luke 12:49, Jesus Christ himself said, I have come to send fire on the earth. 
What kind of fire has the Lord Jesus come to earth in the first advent to send? The fire of God's pleasure and the fire of God's displeasure. Both are connected uniquely to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, what am I saying about that? Well, I'm saying that 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 connects to preaching, and that connects to praying, and that connects to our sense of pattern for life and service as believers. That uh, uh, that anything less than Christ and preaching would be would be a strange preaching and a dishonorable preaching and preaching that is going to be burned away, and that any praying that is prayed uh, uh, with something less than Christ's honor and Christ's glory and Christ's will as revealed is going to be strange. And any pattern of life and any pattern of serving the Lord that in any way is not uniquely connected and thoroughly immersed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ is strange service and strange living, and under the focus of the fire of God's displeasure. Go with me to the book of Acts, the book of history, the book of Acts, the book of history. And I'm interested in Acts 1.14 first. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. As 120 individuals, after the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, his burial, his resurrection on the third day, and after... Forty days of demonstrating himself alive on the earth to his disciples. A small band of 128 people that we should not, as of yet, in that moment, call the church. But nonetheless, they met together in the upper room, a band of 120 people, and they met together with prayer, for prayer. And their prayer is described as being prayed in one accord. There's prayer and supplication. It includes the women. It includes Mary, the mother of Jesus. It includes his brethren. And then you have, out of that prayer meeting, chapter 1, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 1, the promise of the Father fulfilled. The purpose of Christ in baptism as projected by John the baptizer. Acts 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. John had prophesied that the one who was mightier was going to baptize uh, believers uh, uh, with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And here, upon the praying group of individuals gathered in the upper room, 120 in number, 
10 days after the ascension, on the day that the Jewish people celebrated Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God fell like fire, fell like fire from heaven. And it was the fire of God's pleasure upon the establishment of the Lord's church. And the thing that's interesting is that uh, there was prayer, and then there was Pentecost, and the next thing was preaching. If you look uh, at uh, chapter 2 in verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. And then Peter preaches, taking Old Testament scriptures and showing their New Testament fulfillment. And what is the summary and the thrust of Peter's sermon on that glorious day when the fire of the Holy Spirit fell out of heaven from the Lord? Well, that'd be verse 36. Acts 2.36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, this is Peter's conclusion to the sermon, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter's preaching came together to offer the people that were gathered, the truth of Christ. Christ was the focus of their praying. Christ was the focus of their preaching. And when you, when you come to the end of the chapter, guess what you find? You find that Christ was the focus of their pattern of life and ministry. Familiar verses, we've studied them many times before, but look at Acts 2. And verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Beautiful pattern in verse 47. Praising God, we call that worship. Having favor with all the people. That's the spirit of prayer and the pattern of Christ as it rests upon a local congregation. And the result of such praising, and the result of such praying, and the result of such a pattern is that God saves people. That there were given people daily in regards to the ministry of the church. What a powerful reality 
and confirmation of this idea that it's strange fire before the Lord in the modern era when we preach something other than Christ, when we pray in some way uh, except the Christ way, when we, when we engage in a pattern of life that is in any way less than the pattern of Christ in life and service. Well, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I will hurry for my enemy the clock is at hand. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man upon this foundation, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, 3, 13, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire, I'd like to add the fire from the Lord. The fire from the Lord shall try, test, prove every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. I cannot help but think that those instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 have some unique things to say to modern day priests. After the pattern of Leviticus 9 and 10. To the Lord's priest to understand something of the fire of God's pleasure and the fire of God's displeasure. One fire from God. But it either burns in revival or it burns against rebellion. We pray for revival fires. I might argue that the church in this modern era probably knows more about the rebellious nature of God's fire. If we are going to know the fires of God's pleasure, we're going to have to exercise ourselves faithfully as believer priests. Look finally then at Hebrews 12. Well, I know we're studying Hebrews in the next hour, but believe me when I tell you, Hebrews 12 will come a long, 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 long time from now. Hebrews 12 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he, God, hath promised, saying, once more, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Heaven and earth in a coming day is to be shaken by God. Why shaken? Well, because God is going to shake all the shakable things so that they're destroyed. So that the unshakable things will forever remain. Verse 27. 
And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken. I just said that. As of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Uh, The uh, shaking of God ahead results in some things ruined, some things forever. And the things that are forever are the things that are forever. 28. Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, cannot be shaken, the kingdom of God that we've received in the person of Jesus Christ cannot be shaken, is eternal, is forever. And so then, Hebrews says, let us, who are part of this unshakable kingdom of God, let us have grace. What's the need of the hour? Grace. Grace for what? Grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. 1229, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, this morning, my own heart is reminded of how often we approach the preaching hour with a sense of angst. It's not just the usual nervous energy that comes when one must stand before a crowd, but it is a unique sense of challenge to the heart and mind to speak to know that one is responsible before God. Certainly our preaching today and every day must be always and ever about Christ. But Lord, only a few of us preach in the public sense of the word. But all of us pray And certainly our praying ought to be according to the interest and the will of Christ. Nothing less, nothing more. Help us then as believer priests to think about the awesome responsibility that we have to pray in all things. Christ. And then as to life and living, the pattern of the New Testament is clear that our pattern of life and our pattern of service is after nothing less than the person of Jesus Christ. So may we who have trusted you as Lord and Savior, may we who have been made by the endowment of thy spirit a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, may we resolve in all things preached, 
in all things prayed, in all things lived, Jesus Christ. This we pray in 